Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Let's read it together. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Please give us eyes to see our perfect Savior, that we may be transformed into his likeness. Amen. All right, so for Christmas this past year, my daughter Molly gave me a couple books. And she knows that I love to read and she knows that I love history, so she did well. And one of the books that she gave me was called Under a Flaming Sky, The Great Hinkley Firestorm of 1894. And it's a book about an insanely terrible wildfire that ripped through eastern Minnesota, decimated a couple of towns, and killed over 400 people. It described the absolutely dreadful consequences for those caught in this fire and all the various forms of trauma that they experienced. And I had thought it would be pretty terrible, but it was worse than I had thought it would be. Yet, in the midst of that terrible tragedy, it told the story of some very heroic train conductors who, at great risk to their own lives, saved many people by their act of courage. So imagine with me a little bit, if someone had showed up in Hinkley the day before the fire and pulled one of these conductors aside and said, hey, listen, here's what's going to happen tomorrow. And you're going to have to go through this terrible fire with all the rest of these folks. And and just to make it real, we're just going to give you a little taste to see and feel experience all the terrible things that you're going to go through. But now that you know, you've got a choice. You can stay here and you can choose to go through this fire and suffer all these horrible things. And in the process, you can save a lot of people. Or you can take the first train out of Dodge tomorrow morning. Well, that would pose a pretty difficult dilemma for any of us, but maybe in a little way, it gives us a small glimpse of what Jesus is facing in this passage that we just read. So now we want to take a closer look at Matthew 26, and we want to see three specific ways that Jesus responded and how he's our perfect Savior. And in so doing, may we worship and love him wholeheartedly. 
So look again with me at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now the context is this. Jesus and his disciples have come to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's outside Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Immediately prior to this, Jesus and his disciples have celebrated the Last Supper. They've celebrated the Passover, and this was a celebration, a commemoration of God's deliverance, miraculous deliverance of the nation of Israel from slavery from the land of Egypt many, many years before, many centuries before. And during their meal, Jesus told them some new things. He said, listen, this bread that you're eating, this is a symbol of my body that's going to be broken for you. And he said, this wine that you're drinking, it's a symbol of the blood that's going to be shed and poured out so that many can have forgiveness of sins. So Jesus knows it's the night before he's gonna be crucified. And as he anticipates what he's going to face, he needs to pray. So let's pick the story up here in verse 37. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So here we see our first point. Here we see our first point. There we go. I might need you, Hans. (laughs) All right. We see the suffering of Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is not just someone who's a little bit anxious about their pending death. This is more than a tinge of melancholy. The language here in Scripture conveys an overwhelming, completely engulfing sadness. How how big is this? Jesus says in verse 38, he's sorrowful even to death. He literally thought he could die. And in Luke 22, 44, describing the same scene, and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and a sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So what, what's going on here? What's the source of this overwhelming sadness, of this tremendous suffering? Well, let's take a closer look at Jesus' prayers in order to answer that question. If you look with me in verse 39, Jesus says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then down in verse 42, Jesus says, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. And then again in verse 44, Jesus prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus is in agony because of the cup. I brought a cup along with us for an object lesson. He's suffering because of the cup. Three times he prayed. He asked the Father that he would not have to drink the cup. Three times he essentially asked the Father, is there any other way? What's this all about? In the Bible, the cup is a symbol of suffering. It's a representation of God's righteous wrath and anger against sin. A few verses if you want to jot them down. We don't have to turn there. But Isaiah 51.17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk From the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup 
of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And in Revelation chapter 14, 9, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So we see the suffering of Jesus as he prepares to drink or to drain the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is suffering and he's in agony and he's sorrowful to the point of death because of the cup. He's not dying an ordinary death. He's not just another martyr dying for a good cause. Jesus is facing a death unlike anyone else in all of human history. He's going to die on the cross, and while doing so, he's going to face the full fury of God's wrath against sin. In a sermon called Christ's Agony, the great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards described it this way. The agony of Jesus Christ was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. God the Father, as it were, set the cup down before him. He now had a near view of the furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed the raging flames and the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath. The cup. But wait a second. In all the other passages, the folks that have to drink the cup of God's wrath are his enemies. The ones who drink the cup are the ones who have rebelled against God. And that fits, right? God is justly angry at those who have rebelled against him. His wrath rightly burns against his enemies. But Jesus is the Father's beloved Son. He's doing exactly what God the Father had planned for him. He didn't deserve the wrath of God. So let's ask again, why is he in agony and why is he suffering so intensely because of the cup? Why is the wrath of God aimed at Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us the gloriously good news that Jesus is drinking the cup for me and for you. That good news is the message of the gospel. And let's pause here and summarize the message of the gospel in four words. The first word is God. God is the creator. And as a reflection of his perfectly holy character, everything he created was good. And he created mankind to live in fellowship with him, humbly submitting to and obeying his kind and loving authority. Our second word is man or mankind. Mankind rebelled against God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, and every other human being has rejected God's authority. It's called sin. Sin simply is rejecting or ignoring God and the world that he has made. And because God is so holy, he can't just sweep sin under the carpet. He can't pretend it doesn't exist. Like any good judge would not let a guilty criminal go free, God must punish sin. His perfect justice demands it. And that is seriously bad news for every sinner. God's wrath against sin is justly pointed at us. Romans 6.23 says that the wages or the payment of sin is death. But here's where the story turns. The third word is Christ. 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ. God knew that we couldn't save ourselves and would never be able to be good enough to earn his favor. Because of his great mercy, God punished Jesus, his son, on the cross on our behalf so that you and I could have our sin forgiven. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says about it. He says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So that's why Jesus had to drink the cup and why he is suffering in the garden so intensely. On the cross, Jesus would die the death that you and I deserve. He would absorb the full fury of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead, forever proving that his sacrifice was the perfect once-for-all payment for sin. So how do we respond to a love so incredible and sacrificial? First, repent and believe. We repent or we turn away from our sin. We turn away from our rebellion. We turn away from any goodness that we can claim that we think earns us favor with God. And we believe We turn to God. We turn to him completely and trust in the work that Jesus did on our behalf. And if you're here today and your sin has been forgiven, you rejoice. You rejoice. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the ways that we rejoice is we sing. I love how we sing gospel-centered songs here at Grace Rancho. I love how we sing loudly and enthusiastically. It means that sometimes we might embarrass ourselves if we come in too early. That's all right. That's all right. I pray by grace we never stop singing loudly and enthusiastically these gospel-centered songs. We sing songs like, Jesus, thank you, which says, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. We rejoice because for those of us in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, and we now drink from a different type of cup. Earlier in Matthew 26, Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and he said, drink this cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood and it represents the blood that is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in 1 Corinthians 10, it's called the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing. Here's the reality, the wondrous truth. Don't miss this. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath. He drank it for you and me so that we could forever drink the cup of God's blessing. Amen? We rejoice. So the first thing we see is the suffering of Jesus. Next, we see the surrender of Jesus. Look with me in verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
And in 42, again for the second time, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again in verse 44, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that incredible? Three times Jesus asked the father if there was any other way. In the midst of temptation, more intense than anything we can imagine, facing torment and suffering beyond anything we could ever endure, Jesus obeyed. He said yes to the will of the Father. He surrendered his will in order to obey the will of the Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Think again about what Jesus was facing in this way. If after the service, I went over to Heritage Park and I struck up a conversation with somebody, and after we were done talking, they looked at me and they said, you're dead to me. Uh, it would sting a little bit. I'd be fine. But if my wife and best friend of 21 plus, 21, right? <laughs> 21 plus years, Jody says, Mark, you're dead to me. Well, that would really be devastating, right? Considering the strength of the relationship, the length of the relationship. Now think about Jesus and the Father who for all of eternity enjoyed perfect, unbroken fellowship and love. And now Jesus faces the prospect of becoming sin for me and for you on the cross. And rather than experiencing the Father's love, his presence, and his affirmation, for the first time, he'll face God's wrath and judgment. And that perfect fellowship would be severed. And in response to that awful reality, Three times he prays, Father, is there any other way? Not my will, but yours be done. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father. That's in John chapter 6, verse 38. And now in the garden, in the midst of unbelievable pressure, temptation, and agony, Jesus did not waver. He perfectly obeyed. So let's go back to Jonathan Edwards and complete the thought we started a few minutes ago. It was not proper that Jesus should plunge himself into it blindfold as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us knowing what it was. If Jesus Christ did not full know before he took it and drunk it, it would not properly have been his own act as a human being. But when he took that cup, knowing what he did, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience and faithfulness to God. Not once did he fail. He always did what was right. And nowhere was this more evident than in the garden when he said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And this is critically important because he could not have been our sacrifice if he had failed to obey God perfectly. Consider the contrast between our first representative, Adam, and our second representative, Jesus. In Genesis, there was a garden and a tree, and God said to Adam, obey me 
about the tree and you will live. Obey me and I will bless you. And Adam blew it big time. And Romans chapter 5 says that because of his sin, death came to all mankind. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, there was another garden and a tree. The father told Jesus, obey me about the tree and you'll die. Obey me about the tree and I'll crush you. Obey me about the tree and you'll become a curse. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. What's the significance of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father? What does that mean for sinners who have placed their trust in him? It means that we receive the gift of his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full fury of God's wrath on behalf of his children. He died the death that we deserved. He was punished in our place so that we can be forgiven of our sin. The debt of sin has been canceled. He paid the ransom so that we can be free. But that's not all that our Savior did. In his perfect obedience, he lived the life that we could never live. He obeyed the will of the Father all day, every day. And in his mind, his heart, in his actions, he never sinned. The result is that those who trust in him, him receive the credit for his righteous life. Romans 5.19, through Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My sin for his righteousness. It's the greatest exchange ever. It's the most lopsided trade in all of history. All right, think of it this way. How many of you have ever taken a trip to some charitable donation drop-off? Right? You've cleaned out a closet, a part of the garage that hasn't seen too much activity in far too long, and you say, man, we can't wait to get rid of this. And if you're like me, you feel just a tinge of guilt when you kind of unload the trunk and pass it off to these poor people, hoping you kind of get away without them noticing. Your no, I don't need a receipt. Thank you. Thank you. Right? But let's imagine with me if you just drop off this pile of trash and someone says, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know what? And just not only are we going to take that, but in exchange for this pile of trash, we're going to give you this original Van Gogh. Right? And, and just, just as, and we'll take it. Thank you. And we'll just take this worthless pile of whatever it is and we're going to give you this invaluable treasure. Well, that'd be pretty epic, wouldn't it? How much greater, though, is the exchange that God offers to us in Christ? So let's review quickly. When Jesus went to the cross, he died the death that you and I deserved so that we could have our sin forgiven. And not only that, when he lived his perfectly sinless and obedient life, he lived the life that you and I never could so that by faith we could receive the gift of his righteousness. The hymn writer put it this way, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed, here it is, be of sin the double cure, saved from wrath and make me pure. Isn't that beautiful? In Christ, we are doubly cured. We are saved from wrath through his death and we are made pure by the gift of his righteousness. All right, you say, okay, great, Mark, I got it. Now what? How do we apply this? <clears throat> I'm glad you asked. In response, we rest. 
We rest. We can stop trying to live our lives to earn God's favor. We can stop being fearful that God doesn't love us when we blow it. And this is so important because often our tendency as Christians, my tendency as a Christian, is to treat our lives as some sort of performance treadmill. On the good days, we're confident and assured of God's love for us. But on the bad days or in our sinful moments, we doubt his love and erroneously think that somehow we've got to earn our way back into God's good graces. This is wrong. This is wrong, right? It's wrong. So if you're here and you've repented and trusted Jesus as your Savior, you receive the credit for his obedience. It's as if you've lived his life. God sees you as if you have never sinned. That means you and I can step off the performance treadmill. On the cross, Jesus said it's finished. He's accomplished the work and you and I can rest in him. Jerry Bridges, in a book called The Gospel for Real Life, says it this way. Let's see. Is there another quote there? It's the only one? All right. That's the wrong quote on the slide. I'll read the right one. He says this, Have you ever thought about the wonderful truth that Christ lived his perfect life in your place and on your behalf? Has it yet gripped you that when God looks at you today, he sees you clothed in the perfect sinless obedience of his son and that when he says this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased he includes you in that warm embrace brothers and sisters do you believe it do you really believe that or do you still find yourself thinking that god's love for you is somehow based on your performance May God give us grace to rest in his perfect love for us in Christ. All right, so we've seen Jesus' suffering and we've seen his surrender. Finally, let's look at the steadfastness of Jesus. This passage is so rich. Uh, There's so many things we could talk about. Um, So we've seen Jesus' suffering, his surrender, but we also see his steadfast commitment to his disciples. Verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. We've read this a couple times already, but I bring it up again because it's kind of amazing because in the verses that immediately precede this passage, Jesus has just talked to his disciples and he said, listen guys, you're all going to fall away. Trust me, it's going to happen. And then Peter says, no, 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 Lord. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never fall away. And goes, yeah, thanks, Peter, for saying that. You know, you specifically are going to deny me three times. And then the rest of everyone's like, no, 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 we're, we're, no, 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 we're we're all in. Don't worry about us. We're with you. Jesus knew, right? He knew. Still, he goes, all right, let's go to Gethsemane. And then in 37 and 38, he takes Peter and James and John, and he says, listen, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Listen, guys. Be with me. Remain here. Watch with me. Pray with me. I need your strength. I need your encouragement. I need your support. Watch with me and stay awake. Well, 
we've read it. We know what happens, right? He comes to his disciples and finds them asleep. So then he says to them in verse 40, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's kind of remarkable. He could have reamed them for about a dozen different things, and he would have been right to do so. And yet in that moment, when they had completely let him down, he showed remarkable patience and forbearance and found maybe the one thing that he could think of all, think of to affirm them, to say, you know what, I think your heart's in the right place. <laughs> You're tired. And then we know the story again. After that, he came back two times. He's praying. He's in agony. He's suffering. He wants his disciples with him, and they're sleeping. Finally, after the last time, Jesus says in verse 46, see you later, losers. I'm out of here. Don't come looking for me. You're right. He didn't say that. That's what I would have said. And that's probably what all the rest of y'all would have said as well, all right? So, all right. He didn't say that. He said, this is what he said. He said, rise, let us go. Let us go together. These guys that are all going to fall away, these guys have just fallen asleep. These guys that couldn't stay awake and watch with him one hour. He says, men, let's go. There's, there's work to do, right? What patience what love, what steadfastness on behalf of his disciples, right? We see Jesus, his steadfastness as he patiently loves his own. You know, in the way that we see Jesus lovingly and patiently responding to his disciples in the garden ought to give great encouragement, great encouragement and hope to fickle, sinful, sleepy, knuckle-headed, fill-in-your-own-adjective disciples like me, and like you. John 13, 1 says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. And lest you think that, well, maybe that was just for the disciples back in the day, right before Jesus went to the garden, he prayed in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, where Jesus prayed for not just his current disciples, but he prayed for all of his future disciples who would come to know him and love him and follow him. And it's a remarkable prayer, a beautiful prayer of Jesus asking the Father and Jesus expressing his unwavering commitment to his children, to his disciples throughout all of history and throughout the future. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Jesus is still praying for his disciples. Hebrews chapter 7, 25 says, he ever lives to pray for his children. Jesus' love for his children began in eternity past. It didn't fail or falter in the garden. It didn't fail or falter on the cross. And it won't fail or falter for all of eternity. That's why we can rejoice when we read Romans chapter 8, verse 38. It says, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Hebrews 13, 5, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the only fitting reaction to this kind of love is to respond with self-sacrificial love to God and others. Listen to what the scripture says. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God 
as beloved children and walk in love even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then it lists a whole list of things that we should, that we should put on based on the fact that we have been chosen and that we are holy and beloved. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The clear message, the clear message of the Bible is that our love to God and others is in response to the amazing love of God to us in Christ, right? These verses, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The love of Christ controls us. You see that? You see the theme there? It's the love of Christ that should transform us. When we've been on the receiving end of this love, it changes us changes us can't help but change us change us like jesus we're going to be more patient with others beyond that this love transforms our selfishness our pride our fear and insecurity our self-pity our pettiness it'll change the way we face trials it'll change the way we receive criticism it frees us to stop living for ourselves and compels us to live sacrificially in service to God and to others. To live like Jesus, our perfect Savior, the one who came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in conclusion, Jesus truly is our perfect Savior. In his suffering, his surrender, and his steadfastness. We've beheld his perfection in just a few of the ways that we have received from him grace upon grace upon grace. So if you're here and don't know Jesus as your Savior, I urge you to do so today. Look to Jesus. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. This is good news. Will you repent of your sin? and self-reliance and trust him completely. And if you're here today and know Jesus as your Savior, rejoice. Look again to Jesus. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And even now, he ever lives to pray for you. This is good news. Will you rest in his finished work and let his love transform you more and more into his likeness? Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for our time together this morning. Thank you for Jesus, the perfect Savior. Please help us to repent of any pride and self-reliance and humbly live for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.